Acts 2, starting in verse 42. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us all an opportunity to come here today and to uh, submit ourselves under your word. I ask that you would turn our hearts to you, and Lord, that you would, you would help us to understand the things that would be hard to understand, and Lord, with our understanding, help us to, uh, to apply your word in a way that would glorify and honor your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So why do some people leave their churches? Of course, there's multiple factors that go into an individual's choice for leaving a church. Some of the reasons are good, and some of the reasons are petty and illegitimate. Someone may leave a church because they don't like the music. Uh, it's too traditional or it's too contemporary. Someone might leave a church because of doctrinal differences. A member in the congregation is sitting in the pews week after week, and they come to the conclusion, my leadership is not being faithful to the scriptures. Now, whenever that issue comes up, it should be taken very seriously and very carefully worked through. But one of the most common reasons why somebody would leave a church, and maybe you've experienced this or you've heard somebody say this, one of the reasons people would leave is because they don't feel connected to the church that they're attending. It kind of goes something like this. Yeah, I've been attending this church for however, however many years, and I've just never felt plugged in. Never, I never felt connected. There was no fellowship where I was going. Now, maybe you felt that way about the last church you were a member at, or maybe you feel that way about Livingstone. Maybe you've come to a point that you feel kind of cynical and you wonder, well, what does true fellowship even look like and where can I find it? Luke shows us exactly what true fellowship looks like in our passage this morning. Now, apart from the wonders and the signs in verse 43 and the uh, explosion of church membership in verse 47 with the people being saved day by day, 
apart from those two amazing things, I mean, there really isn't anything that extraordinary going on in this passage. Meaning the things that we're going to be looking at this morning are very simple, they're ordinary, and they should be common in the life of the church. Following Pentecost, Peter preaches the gospel to the men of Israel. In verse 29, he proclaims that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. In verse 36, this Jesus whom they crucified is both Lord and Christ. And then in verse 41, all of those who repented and called on Christ for mercy and believed in him, there was about 3,000 souls. And so now we come to a point that we're looking at this precious newborn church. And this newborn church was filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. Verses 42 through 47 is the evidence of a truly spirit-filled church. And the primary mark of a spirit-filled church is fellowship. Now, all that really does is circle us back around to the question, well, what is true fellowship? And I do have to confess to you that um, uh, my outline does not consist of any Ps. Uh, For those of you who haven't been here, uh, Josh has been very carefully constructing amazing alliteration through all of his messages. All of them start with P. Um, Unfortunately, mine does not. So if I mess up your notes, I do apologize. Um, If you want, I am going to be saying fellowship a lot, so you can spell fellowship with a PH. Then keep it there. (laughs) That, that's Liv's joke. I can't take credit. <laughs> but what is true fellowship? Our text shows us that true fellowship is godly devotion. It's care for the church body and a shared life with the church. True fellowship is godly devotion, care for the church body, and a shared life with the church. Look with me at verse 42. Notice the four things that the early church devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. When you're you're devoted to something, it means that you have a single-mindedness towards a course of action. Meaning it's something that you are all in, you're focused on, and majority of the time when you're devoted to something, it's because you like doing it. It's constantly crossing your mind whether you want it to or not. You're always pouring your your time, your money, your energy into the thing you're devoted to. Whatever you devote yourself to, that is an outward expression of what's truly in your heart. So when it says that they devoted themselves, it means that the early church was, they were determined and they were all in to participate in these things. And the first thing, The first being that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They hungered for their teaching. Their bellies groaned and grumbled for doctrine. Now, why is that? Is it because they wanted to be smarter? Did the early church just want to be a bunch of egghead theologians? No. It's because the doctrines that they were learning were the freshly unveiled truths of God's redemptive plan. See, the New Testament wasn't written yet. These Jews were raised on the Old Testament. 
It's as if their entire lives, whenever they would go to temple, they've been sitting around a closed and locked treasure chest, and they long to look inside. And it's the same thing with the saints of old and all the patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, all of them wanted to look inside this treasure chest. And now Peter comes along with his keys and he unlocks the chest and opens the lid. And all of these believers are fascinated by what they see on the inside. They see that every coin in every jewel of the old covenant glows with the glory of Christ and they can't look away. In verse 43, we see that awe came upon every soul. There is fear and reverence. And that awe, some of that we can attribute to the signs and the wonders that were being performed. But the church didn't devote themselves to the signs and the wonders because the signs and the wonders were there to authenticate the truth of the message that was being preached. And you can see that wherever, whenever you're reading the, the Old Testament or the New Testament and you see those amazing miracles, that's to point you to the truth that the messenger is preaching. And these pointed them to the gospel. And they did understand this gospel message that was preached to them. And we see that because back in verse 37, we see that their hearts were cut to the quick. Their hearts were mixed with terror and wonder and humble reverence. But a common question is, doesn't doctrine divide, right? Isn't doctrine bad for church fellowship? I mean, uh, like if you, if you gather a bunch of evangelicals from different denominations, different ages and different cultures, you bring them all into a room, sit them around a table, and then you throw out the topics of speaking in tongues. Are they for today? Or are they not? Do you bring up limited atonement? Or if you bring up infant baptism, you throw those things on the table, then you very well might have an argument on your hands. Now, to answer the first question, does doctrine divide? Yes. Yes, doctrine does divide. Of course it divides. It has to divide. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus meant it when he said that he was going to come with the sword and divide even family units from one another. It was going to be the sword of his mouth, the sword of his word, the sword of doctrine. But that very sword that divides is also the very welding flame that unites. Note that not a single one of us in this room agree on everything about everything. Yet, why is it that we can all take the Lord's Supper together? Why is it that we can pray with one another and worship together without shoving each other out of the pews? Well, it's because we are united in doctrine. We fellowship in doctrine. Those who are a part of the true spirit-filled church, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching with the early church. So since we're, since we're talking about the apostles, consider the apostles' creed, something that we confess together every few weeks or so. Do you believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
Do you believe in the, I heard the yes. Um, <laughs> do you believe in the Trinity, even if it's hard to explain or uh, hard to understand? Do you believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died and he was buried and he rose again? Do you believe that he is going to come to judge the living and the dead? If you said yes to all of these truths, then you're not devoting yourself to just a creed or devoting yourself to the Apostles' Creed. You are devoting yourself to the truth that's within that creed. You are devoting yourself to doctrine. In the church, without devotion to sound doctrine, there is no fellowship. In the church, without devotion to sound doctrine, there is no fellowship. You might have a building filled with people who get along and who have coffee together from time to time. But no amount of chit-chat in the fellowship hall is ever going to bring true fellowship. There must be a mutual hunger for God's word. There must be a mutual hunger for sound doctrine. And there also must be a mutual hunger for worship together in spirit and in truth. In verse 42, we also see that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread in the prayers. Both of these are forms of worship. Prayers, of course, is when we gather together and offer our thanksgiving, our praise, our petitions to the Lord. And then the breaking of bread seems, uh, seems most likely to, or most likely referring to the Lord's Supper. Um, Luke actually uses the same language back in Luke 24-34 when Jesus is breaking bread with his disciples using the same language, the breaking of bread. So communion and prayer are essential to fellowship with one another because both of these forms of worship point our eyes heavenward. And they're not signs of our fellowship with one another, but they're signs of our fellowship with God himself. And they must be practiced habitually throughout our lives. You want to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have a few Bibles, that's on page 1153. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17. Paul says this in reference to the Lord's Supper. Verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. There's this uh, wonderful book by Howard Griffith called Spreading the Feast. Um, And in this book, he explains the theology and the spiritual significance behind taking the Lord's Supper. I highly recommend reading it. It has really given me a deeper appreciation for 
uh, what we do here every other Sunday. But in spreading the, the feast, he makes this point in uh, for uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, Griffith points out that the word participation, or the Greek word koinonia, it shows up twice uh, in this verse. Now that word koinonia is also the very same word for fellowship back in Acts chapter 2. So koinonia can be translated participation, fellowship, or sharing. Griffith points out that what, what Paul is trying to do here is to show you that there is a real fellowship with Christ when we take the Lord's Supper in faith. There is a real fellowship with Christ when we take the Lord's Supper in faith. He's not saying that it's real in the sense that the elements become the physical body and blood of Christ, but he's saying that there is still a true nourishment, a true fellowship with Christ. When we draw to the table in faith, we draw to Christ. And when we draw to Christ together, we inevitably, inevitably are bumping into each other's shoulders in fellowship. But what good is sound doctrine? What good, or, or say, what, what good is devotion to sound doctrine or devotion to the sacraments of prayer if we neglect each other's needs? You can turn back to Acts chapter 2. In verses 44 through 45, he says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. Notice here that Luke isn't saying that the early church was distributing merely their, their time or their prayers to one another, though they, though they were. They didn't merely just help each other with their spiritual or their emotional needs. They were helping each other with their monetary needs. And they were doing it in such a radical way, too, or at least in a way that might seem radical to us. Because they weren't just giving the, the spare change out of their pocket. This is, this is more akin to, I, I heard Tom last week, he got, he got laid off from his job. I know he's not going to be able to make rent this month. I'm going to sell my TV so that way he can get by. Now, Side note slash disclaimer, uh, this is not a proof text for communism or for the cult that you want to start. Please, please, please don't start a cult. <laughs> now I say that because many wicked men from places of both religious power and political power have taken this text and have abused it and twisted it to take advantage of their people. So much so that nearly every single, or really I think every single one of the commentaries that I addressed while I was uh, studying this passage, every single one of them addressed the issue of communism. These text twisters claim that the Bible calls for all of us, if you want to be a good and moral person, you need to, we all need to take all of our stuff together and pool them all together and then evenly distribute it 
amongst each other. After all, we have all things in common. In other words, our stuff, our possessions, our money, it all belongs to each other. Now, we know this isn't true for quite a few reasons, and I'm not going to I'm not going to stay on this for too long. But the first reason, uh, the, the money that they were all raising together, it wasn't even evenly distributed. And we see that at the end of verse 45, that all of the, the money that was collected was targeted towards specific needs. It wasn't just thrown out however anybody wanted it to. Second, we see at the end of verse 46 that the church had generous hearts, they had glad hearts. They weren't giving out of compulsion. They weren't forced to by their leaders to give up anything. They, they gave up and they sacrificed things in their lives because they loved their brother, because they wanted to, and they happily gave up these things. Uh, third, there also wasn't a, a requirement for them to give up a certain amount. Uh, we're going to see that in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter makes the point pretty much that we, we do still have a right to our, our private property. And then lastly, this text also doesn't say that these, uh, the early church was selling everything that they had. We're just told that they sold their possessions. We're not told how much. And we also see they were breaking bread in their homes. So they still had a house. So anyway, so you can't use this for communism. You can't use this for cults. So Hopefully you're convinced. We'll move on. <laughs> so what can we learn here from our brothers and sisters about fellowship? We can learn that fellowship comes at a cost. It wasn't easy. Most of those who came to Christ at this point were notoriously dirt poor. Just because they gave gladly and generously, again, does not mean that it was easy. When they sold their stuff, they were sacrificing a great deal for the benefit and the needs of those in the body of Christ. Fellowship is not cheap. At least it's not as cheap as chatting over coffee and cookies. Now, all I'm saying there is that that's not all of what fellowship is or ultimately what it is. And we'll talk more about that later. There ought to be times that you need to sacrifice for the sake of your brother. Now, I know that's a lot easier said than done. I, I know that money can be a very touchy subject, especially for us who really don't have a lot of it. But think about this, though. How much did your fellowship with God cost? What was the redemptive price God paid to have fellowship with you? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Peter says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
fellowship with you was not cheap. It costs the precious blood of Christ. The more that we value our privacy, our individuality, our stuff, the more that we value those things, the less we will value or be devoted to the needs of the church. There's a reason why the New Testament writers use the metaphor that we are the body of Christ. It's because there's not much else in this world that we value more than our own body parts. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, I was at work and I was helping one of my residents get up and get dressed for the day. And over this, um, uh, over this past year, his disease has progressively gotten worse. His mental faculties are all there, but uh, his body is continuing to decay. And so uh, I was helping him get up and I sat him in his wheelchair and, uh, and he said to me rather bitterly, you know, if, oh yeah. And, and so now like he's, he's not able to walk, he's not able to stand on his own. He needs ex ex extensive assistance. So as I was helping him, he, he said, you know, if, if God could do anything, uh, I want him to go back in time and take my house. And so I, I paused and I was listening to him and he went on and, and he said, I, I want him to go back and take my house, take my car. He can take my job too if he wants to. Just give me my legs back. He wanted nothing but his body to be in good health, something that I'm sure some of you can relate to. Now, do you feel that way towards the body of Christ? Do you feel that way towards the church? Do you want nothing more than for her needs to be met, for her needs to be cared for? In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, you don't have to turn there. In James 2, verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So are you, are you aware of the needs that are around you? And if you are aware of the needs of the church, in what ways are you able to help? In a spirit-filled church, true fellowship looks like godly devotion. It looks like caring for the needs of the church body. And lastly, it is a shared life with the church. Look with me at verses 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day, they were in the temple. Day by day, they were hanging out with each other in each other's homes. They could not get enough of each other. 
Here we see both uh, formal and informal meetings. Uh, them going to the, the temple and meeting in the temple together. We can equate that to more of the formal worship, like how we gather together on Sundays. And then breaking bread in each other's homes. Um, I think that's a little different than uh, the breaking of bread we see in verse 42. I think this breaking bread is more equated to them having casual meals in each other's houses, something a little more informal. Uh, do you know the, the saying, the family that prays together stays together? I love in uh, one, of, one of R.C. Sproul's books, he actually takes that phrase and he, he tweaks it a little bit and he adds, adds to it. And I love it. He says, the family that prays and plays together stays together. You see, there are, there are churches with way too much informality, churches with way too much play. There's hardly any devotion to the scriptures, hardly any devotion to sound doctrine. But there are also churches with too much formality, as in there's little outlet for the congregation to be able to enjoy one another. There's, there's service after service and Bible study after Bible study, and then maybe they'll throw one potluck in a year and then it just kind of feels awkward because nobody knows each other and you've only got to talk with each other 10 minutes both before and after the service. Both of these practices are harmful to a congregation. There needs to be a mix of formality and informality and they need to be prayerfully and carefully balanced in the life of the church. And we might differ as to where exactly that we draw that line, but that's why I said prayerfully and carefully. Next, we see the importance of togetherness in this section. In verse 44, all who believed were together. And in verse 46, they were attending the temple together. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 25, speaks, uh, speaks a warning, saying, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He shows us that fellowship isn't optional. Um, one theologian puts it, he says that church is it's not a spectator event on Sunday. It's not something that we, we just come to and stand on the sidelines. But fellowship or church is a common shared life with other believers. Now, one of the most prominent opponents of this today is uh, the idea of the online church, uh, which is really no church at all, because there is no fellowship. There is no togetherness. Now, for those of you listening in who are sick or traveling, uh, I'm not talking about you. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about those who constantly neglect gathering together simply because they don't feel like it or that's not their style of how they want to do church. That sort of attitude and that sort of practice is sinful. Being physically together is necessary for fellowship. And why is that? Well, first and foremost, because God commanded it. You can put a period right there, but we'll, we'll keep going. Well, God commands it. 
And it's also necessary for fellowship because when we gather, uh, gather together, it's for our spiritual nourishment as well as the nourishment of the rest of the body. So, so when you come to church, don't come to church merely just for your sake, though you should, but also come for the sake of your brother and your sister. So my, my application question for you guys is, are you guys spending time with one another? Not just in the formal setting of worship, but outside of Sunday worship. Now, I know that I took a dig at coffee and cookies earlier, but my, my only reason for that was I was just trying to show you that that's not all of what fellowship is or ultimately what it is, but it definitely has a place in fellowship, and that would be right here. Take time to get to know one another, and there's various outlets and various ways you can do that. I mean, go for walks, enjoy movie nights. I know an insane amount of you love board games, so you can have a game night. Enjoy each other's company outside of formal worship. We see at the end of our passage that they, they praise God together. And they had favor with all of the people. Now, unfortunately, that favor isn't going to last. As we continue through Acts, we're going to see that there's going to be ramped up persecution. Uh, but nevertheless, God still continued to add to their number. God preserved the faith and the teachings of the apostles, and he passed them down through the ages down to us today. Through the teaching and the preaching of the gospel, God sovereignly and graciously adds lost souls to his church. Now, much of what we looked at this morning is very simple, and very ordinary, setting our minds on godly things such as sound doctrine and proper worship, caring for each other's needs and sharing our life together. All of those things, though, are signs of a spiritually healthy church, and they're signs of a spirit-filled church. So if you feel like fellowship isn't present here or in the church that you're a member at, before you cut the cord, before you leave, pray and pray earnestly that God will open doors for you to initiate times of fellowship. If he's laid on your heart that there's a need within his church, pray that he will give you the grace and the ability to fill that need. Let's pray. Lord, our God, Thank you for preserving the early church's example for us. Thank you for the fellowship that we have with you and that we have with one another. I ask that you would lay on our hearts the needs of our friends and family around us and just ask that you would give us the, the, the grace and the ability to do your will Help us to grow closer together and closer with you. Lord, we do ask this in your son's name. We do love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen.